If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Amen. Oh, Lord God. Be pleased to cause your word by the power of your spirit to change us from scared orphans to confident sons, ready to learn, to try, and to live out the meaning of our salvation in Christ. We know your word does not return to you void, but accomplishes what you send it out to do, to convict the lost of their sin and to harden some, but brings others to bend the knee to Christ, for some, it's the aroma of death leading to death and misery. To others, it hardens their souls so that they cannot come to you. May we be a congregation that always seeks to be ruled and fed and nourished on your holy, solid food from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The main idea here that we're focusing on is the creator-creature distinction that God is God and we are not, and particularly here in this passage, we're going to be focusing on his goodness, that he is good in himself, that he is goodness defined. There is no other ultimate full source of goodness other than God. And the central point is how that goodness works out here for us in time. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So the big question that we're focusing on this morning is how does God change things for the better for me? The answer is God who is good brings about change for my good by using his will to focus his goodness to create goodness, by using his words to focus his light to change darkness, and using his wisdom to focus his skill to call reality by name. In my college days in the late 80s, there was a man by the name of Dana Carvey that did an impersonation of George H.W. Bush in the late 80s. He was able to get all the general inflections and mannerisms slightly exaggerated. And it was around the time when the Berlin Wall came down. And please excuse my attempt at this impersonation of Dana Carvey impersonating George H.W. Bush. Before Bush, wow. After Bush, no wall. Place in history secured. <laughs> there is a sense in which we all want to make a mark. We want to do good to this world. We may want to do that for selfish reasons. But nonetheless, there is a desire in every human heart to make an impact that people would receive as something good. What we just referenced was the happiness about tearing down a wall. But it wasn't just tearing down, it was 
building up because it was about reuniting families. It was about coming out of darkness, out of the gray, dreary death over there in East Berlin. It's about light. It's about coming out of cold-hearted conformity into love. Is there any good in this world? Yes, because I have hope because God is the creator, the source of all good, and I am the creature. God created me in goodness, and God is redeeming me in Jesus Christ, who is the only man that lived all good. He's making me good. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So how does God change things for the better for me? The answer is God who is good brings about change for my good by using his will to focus his goodness to create goodness. In verse one, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did God need to create? No, he did not need to create. He is fully satisfied in himself. He glories in himself as God. No good exists apart from him because he's there at the beginning. In other words, he's before the beginning, over the beginning. We can't wrap our minds around it. But did God want to create? Yes. You show what you want by what you do. So he must delight in creation. No being, including human beings, can be convinced against their will. If someone makes me say, you know, hey, Andy, eat that worm. I'm going to go, no. Because the choice is between what? Eating the worm or staying healthy. But you can be convinced against your will, right? And if I hold a gun to your head and I say, I'll shoot you if you don't eat that worm. I'm not eating a worm because I want to eat the worm. I'm choosing between life and death at that moment. You cannot be convinced against your will. You are bound by what you delight in. You show your character by what you do. And God here shows his character by creating, by showing the goodness in creating. And because the will is bound like that, bound to motives, bound to desires, bound to character, there is sanity, there is order, there is beauty. From that we see that there are fixed ideas for the creation from all eternity. It cannot change. It is good for goodness sake. Even in a fallen world, there is a constant pattern of good. So how much thought did God put into this creation? How much good came out in it? And we see in verse two, the beginnings of this. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The fancy word for this is creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, no pre-existent material, no eternally existent material. What we are seeing here in verse two is the first moment of creation. When it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth coming out of verse one, all this stuff is there. And it's looking towards verse three through three circumstances. First, that the earth was without form and void. That darkness was over the face of the deep waters and that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. So without form and void, what we have here are the building blocks of creation, but are not yet arranged. Just think of a child with a bucket of Legos, just pouring them all out onto the floor. And so much can be said about this, but there's a mystery here because there's not much of a there 
there yet. There's darkness over the face of the deep, the waters. There's no light because the earth does not yet have a firm body of material. We see here, the mind of God is incomprehensible, impenetrable. There's a mystery, there's an awe, there's a glory because it is the beginning of all, everything. Second Peter 3, 5, when the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. See how Peter refers directly back to this passage. It's even there in the New Testament. The spirit of God, therefore, was hovering over the waters, over the deep. And unlike some of our founding fathers who were deists like Thomas Jefferson, who tried to put a gap between God and the real world, that God was sort of like a clockmaker. He gets all the parts together and then he sets it in motion and every, then he leaves it alone. The Bible does not say that at all. The Bible says that God is involved with his creation, separate but yet in and through and upholding all of it. If deism is right, there can be no miracles, no feeding on the 5,000, no Jesus incarnate, fully God, fully man, and no resurrection at all. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 17 and 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It means useless. And you are still in your sins. Is that where you want to be? Because we know this world isn't what it's supposed to be. And the deists have no answers for this. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are not to be focused on this world, but I'm afraid that the religion of America has, has been noted in one particular big sociological study of youth, that the religion of youth in America today can be described as moral therapeutic deism. It's moral. I just want to know how to be good in the most surface of ways. Therapeutic. I got to feel good about myself and I deserve it. Deism. God, he's there only when I need him. He's kind of like my little butler to make me feel good so I can feel like I am good. But the Bible says that God, the holy God, is in his world. Because we see here the spirit hovering over the waters. He's deeply involved with the real world and the spirit is giving off energy because we know that energy cannot create itself. There must be a higher form of energy to give birth to the energy needed to do other things. My daughters and I, we looked up a YouTube channel to learn how to fold paper airplanes and do all these different tricky folds and run around outside. And of course, those planes land on the ground. They can't do anything. They don't have any engines, nothing. It takes the energy of the human hand to get it to do what it's supposed to do, what it was designed to do. The same here. Look at that quote from Henry Morris. The first importation of energy to the universe is described as the vibrating movement of the spirit of God himself. All the heavens and the earth are waiting within this stuff. The potential here. God stamps his goodness, which he is goodness itself. He stamps that all over creation. And so we have here with the spirit as it were, vibrating energy into this, you have this question of anticipation. What's he going to do? Do you see the deliberate thought God put into creating this world? And why did he do it? For you and me. This is the staging area. 
where we as reflections of his glory made in his image would put on display the infinite wonder and the intricacies and the richness of the glory that he is. That's how you were created. And this is his delight. You ever think of yourself as the delight of God just in your existence? We see in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is personified as a woman, as a metaphor, and speaks to the source of God's delight. Proverbs 8, 27, beginning of verse 28 and verse 30. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. See how he's referring? Solomon is referring back to this passage. When he made firm the skies above, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always that God rejoices in what he does because he is good and beautiful. So God uses his will, imposing his delighting in his work kinds of intentions to infuse his glory into creation. But how does he start getting all that stuff going? The stuff that's there in verse two, he does it by his words. And this creator creature distinction, God is above us, but he's good and he's goodness itself. He starts this world. He begins to work and brings this transforming work in verse two, such that he makes everything beautiful in its time. And then we say, well, how does God change things for the better for me? Well, God, who is good, brings about change for my good by using his will to focus his goodness, to create goodness, and by using his words to focus his light to change darkness. Verse 3, and God said that there be light and there was light. Words have a reference point. Otherwise, they're just grunts. When God says, let there be light, what's he referring to? The Bible tells us that God is light. Just like it says that he is goodness, that he is love, that he is holiness. First John 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is fully God, fully man, declares the same thing about himself. He is God. I hope everybody in here is convinced that Jesus is God because there have been studies of evangelicals in America that don't believe that Jesus is God, which just boggles my mind. I don't know how that got past all these people. I'm afraid there's a lot of biblical illiteracy out there. Here's what Jesus says about himself. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, referring back to creation. He is that light. Whoever follows me, so there is a fixed identity here, inflexible, and you want an inflexible God. You want a God who's inflexible in his character, who will not bend to anything that we want him to do, anything we want him to say. You want a God inflexible in his goodness. And we ought to take what he says as goodness and quit trying to bend everything to our culture, to our desires, like it's going on and it's rampant in our world today. How the authority of God is scoffed. So whoever follows me will not walk where? In darkness. Here we have the darkness over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep, before the creation became something. 
It was a thing, but it was disordered. God made the basic stuff and he's bringing order to it. He says, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. The initial creative energy and activity of life. He will have the light of life if he follows me. Not anyone else, not Buddha, not Allah, not some kind of secular atheistic guru who thinks he knows everything. Look, it's the nature of Jesus. John 1, 4, and 5, we're talking about Jesus existing as God the Son before he was incarnate. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We have light coming out of God. You were made out of the energy of God's light. And in this new city of Jerusalem, as we're moving toward light, this very light, the light which is God, which is Jesus himself, in the new city of Jerusalem, in the new earth that is coming, Jesus, as the sacrificial lamb who came under darkness, what we just read in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. He came under the darkness of our sin, and he came under the darkness of the wrath of God, because that is what we deserve for our sin. The sacrificial lamb of God is the only source of light in this new renewed earth, this renewed city. Look at Revelation 21, 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of the, of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb by its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there here we have god the holy spirit bringing together focused light the light which god himself is and that energy coming out separate from him not a part of him but derived from him wouldn't we expect that we couldn't understand all this? I mean, if God is God, don't expect to make it all fit and nice and neat into our, our rational categories. The God Holy Spirit is focusing that light to bring about the change of bringing light to darkness. Look at a quote from Henry Morris. Since the presence of visible light waves necessarily involves the entire electromagnetic spectrum, it sets the electromagnetic forces into operation thus completing the energizing of the physical cosmos. In other words, scientifically he's explaining how light brings about the necessary energy to get it all going. Out of darkness, light brings in the necessary electromagnetic spectrum to force getting all the rest of it going. The light comes into the dark and watery mass, a, a barrenness, a wilderness of desert. We read in Psalm 63, Lord, I am thirsty here in a dry and weary land. Don't we feel that? Especially, you see all the memes running around about 2020. What a year it's been. This wilderness, this barrenness that's in this darkness is a later metaphor to the pointlessness when we try to define our own terms while rejecting from the get-go God's terms, wandering around in the desert for 40 years, for example. And the light sets this dark, watery mass into motion. And the rotation of the earth begins. The rotation of the earth, because there's 
morning, evening and morning. And where is this all heading? It's heading in the direction of its final form, not its ultimate final form, but the, the final form of that staging area, the beautiful garden. And out of the ground of that beautiful garden, God will form the crown of his creation, humankind. His words put into effect his will. His words are effective. He gets things done by speaking. Or better, his words are effectual. They set in motion and accomplish exactly what he wants done. Exactly. You know, it's significant that the first time God ever speaks in the Bible, light appears. Look at the quote from Dr. Douglas Kelly, one of my seminary professors. When God began shaping what he had made, he did so by speaking light into it. This is echoed all through the scriptures, not only in creation, but also in redemption, the purpose of which is to undo the effects of the fall into sin and to bring everything into restoration of what it should be, because we know it's not what it should be. So scripture's echo chamber starts to work on us from the inside out, saying in effect that God's words are performative. His words enlighten our minds that he puts something there that isn't there before. Look at Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It opens up. That's why we're here this morning. That's why I'm talking right now. It imparts. In other words, put something there that was not there to begin with. It imparts understanding to the simple. So God's words are performative. God's words are functional. His words take root at the core of our being and start an energetic process. Second Corinthians 4, 5. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's that creative energy of God's light coming into our darkness. And the results, what is it? After enlightening our minds and taking root in our hearts, his words produce their desired effect. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This creator creature distinction gives me hope because God himself, who is goodness himself, who comes, who puts his energy into creating the world, who comes into this world in the face of Jesus Christ, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So how does he go about making things better for me? Well, God, who is good, brings about change for my good by using his will to focus his goodness, to create goodness, using his words to focus his light, to change the darkness. And lastly, using his wisdom to focus his skill to call reality by name. And what we see here in verses four and five, and especially right now in verse four, we see an evaluation God who is good, what do you think his evaluation of his work is going to be? He says what? He saw the light and it was good. This shows that God is deeply involved with every aspect, every element, every area, all the component parts, all the planning and the putting together. We think of contractors here, right? Who needs to make sure everything's all the resources are there and everything's done on time and on schedule. Of course, this is never a question in God, right? We see that he delights in his creation, not just in his, act, his own activity in it, but seeing it through to the final product. You know, a lot of people think Christianity is just all about spiritual stuff, that the physical doesn't matter. 
But here God calls the physical good. It's the import of someone named Plato that brought the idea that physical reality is bad and only spirituality is good. Greek philosopher. So he made it and he formed it. And here in verse four, he begins to bring in the skill. He starts separating the parts. Light is good. Darkness is not reported as good here. Throughout scripture, it's a metaphor of the evil of sin and its effects on the fallen world. So here in verse four, we have the skill. Then in verse five, he brings in the beauty. Starts naming light he called day, the darkness he called night. Naming is a privilege of authority and power, but he's doing beauty by contrast here. The most basic contrast first, day and night. I mean, when we see a surprising, unexpected difference in someone, don't we say, boy, it's like day and night with that person. There's poetry in motion, literally here in this text. Light corresponding to the sun and moon when the sun and moon weren't there. Light gets the earth rotating. There's evening, there's morning. And then to put an explanation point on it all, we have here the interpretation of the translation, the first day, but it's not in the original language an ordinal number. It's not first, second, third. It is literally says day one. Boom. We have this God who is distinct from us, who is goodness itself, starts creation, making everything beautiful in its time. And he makes things better for me because he's good and he brings about change for my good by using his will to focus his goodness to create goodness, using his words to focus his light to change the darkness, using his wisdom to focus his skill to call reality by name and to name me as his own, the crowning glory of his creation as we shall see as we proceed through the chapter. My identity is fixed. We can't play with our identity. We can. God gives us over to our depraved consciences. But as far as he's concerned, he knows who we are. It's inflexibly set in place by him because he is the author of everything good and beautiful. And it is absolutely foolish to go against what he says. It's it's mind-blowingly foolish. So I can have hope that I can change because I know and you know of yourself and of everyone else around you that we all ain't what we're cracked up to be. So in conclusion, we see in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That was his plan from day one. His deliberate actions puts on display his creative richness and power as the stamp of his good character all over creation. And what's that called? It's called beauty. And we are drawn to it. And he did this to show that he intends good for us. By the beauty of his creative activity, he wants to allure us to the beauty of his work. Allure, that's the word that he used for his old covenant people. They were disobeying him. He wants to allure them back to himself. Using the metaphor of his disobedient people as a promiscuously unfaithful wife, in Hosea 2, verses 1 through 13, he threatens them with disciplinary judgment. Right after that, he shows us his heart behind the discipline. Hosea 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. How? Bring her into the wilderness and, this is how, speak tenderly to her. Speak tenderly to her. 
and I will give her her vineyards. In other words, joy and delight, my joy and delight in creation. And make the valley of Achor. Achor is a Hebrew word that means trouble. Oops, I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the, as in the days of her youth. The days of her youth. The restoration we have in Christ. God is the husband in this metaphor. And as at that time when she came out of the land of Egypt, free from her slavery. God's heart behind the discipline is to draw his people to himself, to allure us to his beauty. Why? So he can speak tenderly the word that changes our minds about what beautiful really is. Then we are drawn to it. Then we become attached to it. And the more attached we are, the more we believe we can become more attractive by association. And we do. And we show it in ourselves as we walk in the light of the Lord. That's how he wants to change you, to allure you by the beauty of his creative activity in which he transforms you by his light, transform you by the word that he speaks tenderly to you in Christ. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Has your day one begun yet? The creative activity of God. Second Corinthians 4, 5. We read, let light shine out of darkness. The God who said that has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He gets life in motion. Because you see, you haven't begun to live yet until this is true of you. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the same sense that day one is an emphasis, an exclamation point, Paul here in the Greek, we, we try to smooth it over to make it make sense to us to not feel so jumpy. But literally what it says here is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It doesn't say he is a new creation, day one. We go to sing this last hymn, focus on that last verse. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. Can God do something with that deadness? And from the ground there blossoms red. Why red? Because blood starts flowing. Life, life that shall endless be. Where Jesus as the sacrificial lamb is the light who forever keeps life in motion. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please give us the wisdom of using the tools you've given us to do the soul surgery you desire to do in us. May you bring healing, the effectual working of your word to bear on our minds and hearts this week, moving us from there into action that we may reflect the love and mercy that we have found in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.